Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, and I'm sorry to say the, the special guest that I did have lined up for tonight's recording is no longer available. So sad, so sorry, guys. Uh, everyone was excited that I've been promoting on Twitter and in other places that I had a special guest lined up. It was a surprise guest, and as is often the case, with such people um cancellation (laughs) happened kind of at the last minute so it's just going to be me uh for those of you who uh for some reason are still listening thank you and i hope to make this well worthwhile for you we uh i have a lot to, to get to today i want to answer a question that i got via twitter a very good question i thought from one of our listeners Um, I also want to continue our review of the late stages of the WSOP main event from 2018. Uh, I've been studying very carefully some of the hands that occurred late in day seven, and I have some thoughts to share about them. So I hope you guys can hang in there when it's just going to be me. I want to thank you all for the wonderful feedback about our last episode uh, to me, that's the dream team. We had Mark Alioto, of course, uh, Derek Tenbush, Killingbird. It was a uh, an epic episode where we actually reviewed, if you haven't heard it yet, we reviewed in graphic detail the upcoming World Series of Poker schedule. And then we got into some very deep, uh, high-level, I think, strategy discussion uh, about a hand that Derek had played online on acr so uh yeah definitely go back and listen to that one to me recording with those guys is uh you know just like a dream they're just the best one exciting development that has taken place uh since that recording is that uh, poker central uh, and espn have announced that they're going to be doing extensive coverage of the 2019 WSOP main event as well. Uh, I heard rumors that the uh, ratings were actually up from previous years, which is interesting to me because there were not that many well-known players uh, remaining in the tournament towards the end. Uh, it wasn't like previous years when we had like a Negranu or a Phil Ivey in the mix. Uh, Joe Cata obviously is a, a recognizable face among poker fans. Um, but yeah, of course, he doesn't have the same notoriety as someone like a Negreanu or an Ivy. Uh, and I don't know that that's necessarily why people were tuning in. But I think it's just more that uh, poker is having a bit of a, a mild renaissance. Uh, it was the second largest main event field in history, which is impressive. And possibly as gambling in general becomes more accepted around the United States uh, with the legalization of sports betting and more and more casinos popping up all over the world. Uh, Maybe that's what's going on and people are starting to get interested in poker again. Or I don't really know. I'm just, uh, it's pure conjecture on my part uh, right now. So guys, I want to get to this email because I mean, well, it's it's a tweet actually that I found really interesting. It's from a listener named Tony and Tony thank you so much for listening and for for writing and I'm just gonna read his tweet he kinda did it he doesn't know how Twitter works you're supposed to keep your tweets to 140 characters or less Uh, what Tony does is puts out seven tweets with the (laughs) to be continued at the end but the gist of it is I'm wondering if you'd be willing to answer a basic and possibly very dumb strategy strategy question for me because I don't get it. Uh, caveat, I am 99% a cash game guy. Okay, Tony, first off, uh, you heard in elementary school 
that there is no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, that's not true, okay? There are very stupid questions, and more importantly, there are stupid people who ask questions. However, in your case, we have neither. We have a smart person asking a smart question, and one that I really wanted to get into with my uh, guest that I thought I would have this week, but instead, I'm just going to give my thoughts on Tony's question and open it up to you guys to tweet me uh, at Clayton Comic and let me know what you think about Tony's question. So he puts it to us this way. Let's say the blinds are 500, 1,000 with a 100 ante. Yes, I know that ante is small. It folds to the button. In today's tourney world, it seems that the standard open here would be to 2,100 or 2,200. The small blind folds and now it's up to the big blind who has to call 1,100 or 1,200 into a pot of 3,500 or 3,600. So he's getting between 3 to 1 and 3.3 to 1 on a call. Even accounting for being out of position, he should call very wide here, correct? So, Tony, let me talk about these numbers a little bit. Uh, so if you were getting 3 to 1 on a call, then that would mean that uh, to break even, I'd have to win the pot one time out of four, 25% is three to one expressed as a ratio. Uh, the problem with that is it does not account for future betting. Now I know Tony refers to that when he says even accounting for being out of position, but it's not just that you'll be out of position. It's that these are the expressed odds you're getting pre-flop, but it's going to be a much bigger pot later if there is betting on the flop turn and river. And, of course, being out of position is magnified as pots get bigger and bigger. The, the disadvantage of being out of position, that is, is magnified as pots get bigger and bigger. So, uh, although his numbers are, are accurate as far as the expressed odds, there is so much more future betting to consider. that That's why many players still choose to fold, even though the pre-flop pot odds are attractive. Now, if the bet from the button would happen to put the button all in, or calling that bet would put the, the big blind all in, and we don't have to worry about future betting, then all we would need to concern ourselves with would be those pre-flop expressed odds. However, uh, that's rarely the case, and that's not the uh, case in the example that Tony is presenting. His question is, why is the right play not to open to more like 3,200 and offer 2.1 to 1 to call and increases the button's odds of taking the pot down right there. I guess what I'm trying to get at is if you can explain how and why smaller raise sizes are correct versus the old school 3X. Okay, so in the old days when tournament poker began, uh, well, at least the earliest days that I know, uh, kind of maybe around the year 1999 or so, is when I started paying attention to uh, tournament poker. Prior to that, I had played mostly uh, seven-card stud, and then I had moved into limit hold'em. Then I started dabbling in no limit hold'em as that game started to gain popularity sometime around 1999 or the year 2000. So we're talking ancient history <laughs> to some of you, but hey, what can I say? I've been around for a while, guys. Uh, I remember that the standard opening bet used to be three times the big blind in late position, four times the big blind in middle position, and even five times the big blind in early position. Now, the conventional wisdom back in those days was that uh, raising larger from early position would be one way to increase your chances of taking down the pot pre-flop, which was more important to do uh, from early position rather than getting involved in a pot where I'd have to play from out of position for the rest of the hand. So in addition to tightening up our pre-flop uh, hand raising uh, ranges, in early position, we'd also increase the size of the pre-flop raise to all the way up to maybe five times the big blind. Uh, so in Tony's example, with the 500, 1,000 with 100 ante, 
uh, you know, under the gun, if I wanted to raise with Ace King, I literally would make it maybe 5,000. Uh, nowadays, that would just seem ridiculous. But what that would do is it would basically ensure that anyone who got involved with me in that pot would have to have a value hand to do so. And now I can play with a smaller SPR after the flop. Now, SPR stands for stack to pot ratio, which uh, the lower your SPR, the less important being out of position becomes. So in other words, if I only have a pot size bet, bet left on the flop, it doesn't matter as much on the flop uh, or on future streets because we're probably going to get it all in on the flop or at, at worst on the turn. So that was kind of the way we used to think about it. That was the way we looked at it. And if you watch coverage of the WSOP from 2003 or the early days when they first started showing the uh, whole cards, I believe the first year for that may have been 03 or 04. Um, yeah, it was 03 for sure. Chris Moneymaker, we saw what he had in every hand as he made his incredible run uh, towards winning that championship bracelet. But if you watch the bet sizing in those old episodes, you could probably find them on YouTube or someplace. Uh, the raise sizes are ludicrous by today's standards. They're just enormous raise sizes. Now, why did this change? Okay, I'm going to give my thoughts about what happened and why this changed. Somewhere along the line, like maybe around 2005 or 2006, players started to develop a different playing style than what we saw in the early 2000s. Uh, what I mean is things got much tighter. Tournament poker used to be uh, much more aggressive uh, than it is now. Players were more than happy to get all in in coin flip situations. Uh, it, it, there wasn't this idea, the, the understanding of how important preserving one's tournament life uh, it just didn't exist back then. There weren't training sites. There were just a few books, and many of them were terrible uh, books that I would never recommend you read, um, giving terrible advice on how to play No Limit Hold'em tournaments. So uh, what happened around 06, players started to wisen up, and everyone got a lot better at the game starting in, in those years, and they actually shifted to the other polar opposite, and players became much much tighter whereas the standard button open back in 01 or 02 may have been to three times the big blind now we started seeing the min raise or you know just a little bit more than the min raise from the button now when that happened there was a, a serious shift in the advantage the advantage now went to the players who were raising very small from the button because Training sites and even books that were being written in that time were just advising everyone, look, you're, we all lose money from the big blind. Usually the best play is to fold your big blind if you don't have a really strong hand to get involved with. But those books were written with the understanding that the raise sizes would be 3x or 4x, not thinking that it would just be a min raise offering extremely attractive pot odds to try to call and hit a flop or whatever. So... Uh, there's always a cat and mouse game between what the uh, poker world is doing and what the teachers are teaching. So this is something that, that lasted for quite a while, where because players were folding their big blind way too much, uh, despite the attractive pot odds they were getting, people were uh, getting away with stealing blinds at a very low cost of just two times the big blind, routinely and some of the most successful online players in that time period 06 08 around then were doing this min raise online there was no reason to raise any bigger because players were still uh, basically their calling range or their or re-raising range didn't change from when the standard open had been three or even four times the big blind so i hope this makes sense but what i'm trying to say is that uh, players didn't really notice that they were getting attractive pot odds because the way people played back then, I'm talking 10 or 12 years ago, the way people played back then was they tried to avoid 
getting involved in pots from out of position. So as players who found themselves on the button would aggressively get after the big blinds who were folding too much, uh, they found that they didn't even need to put in more than two times the big blind to get that job done for quite a while. Uh, Generally speaking, in those days, players were way too tight, not only from the big blind, but kind of in general. Poker shifts from being a wild, loose, aggressive game. They look towards the end of the 2000s, maybe like 2009-ish. That was the period of time when you really started to see a lot of pre-flop, 3-bet, 4-bet, 5-bet, with both players having nothing, basically. Uh, you You just don't see that as much now. Players are much more inclined to call and see the flop. Now, part of that is because of attractive pot odds, uh, because of these low raise sizes that we're discussing, but it's also because everybody seems to think that he has a skill edge over all of his opponents after the flop. So why would I want to take a a high-variance play pre-flop when I can just uh, outmaneuver and outplay everybody in the world on the flop? We know that, of course, it's impossible for all of us to be better than all of us. But it seems to me that nearly every single player that I talk to thinks that he has uh, a post-flop advantage over the field. So as we endeavor to steal the blinds, we have a number of factors to consider. So if it's folded to me on the button and I've noticed that the player in the big blind does not defend his big blind very often, regardless of my raise size, then my strategy should be to go for the min-raise. If he's not going to consider the pot odds, then neither should I, because the math never changes. Basically, if I can win that pot one time out of three, uh, sorry, one time out of four, if I'm offering him uh, a three-to-one price, which is the min raise with no ante, would offer my opponent three to one on a call, then all I need to do is win that pot 25% of the time, one in in four, and then I will show, uh, I will break even. Any more than that, and I show a profit. So that's the math, and the math doesn't change. Uh, Whether opponents are going to let me do that or not uh, will affect my strategy. If I have a player who seems to want to defend his big blind relentlessly with a very wide range, then I need to know whether it makes sense to build a bigger pot. Uh, You know, you can go too far with blind defending. So I might want to raise a 3x against such a player, even knowing that he's going to call, because it will be much harder for him to win pots from out of position. And now I can just have a bigger pot And in all likelihood, I'll have a greater chance of winning that pot than my opponent will, uh, given that I have the button and he will have to act first on the flop, turn, and river. So, uh, with all of these things in mind, it really comes down to what is my opponent likely to do? What are his or her tendencies and then exploiting those tendencies. Now, I know some of you are studying uh, solvers and you're approaching the game from a game theoretical uh, approach, and I don't disparage you for that. If you don't have reads on your opponent, you should have a baseline opening range and a, and a standard opening bet, if you will, uh, and all of that is important. Now, for me... My standard opening bet is closer to 3x because I don't want to offer my opponent attractive pot odds pre-flop because he is more likely to make a good decision. What I mean by that is nowadays players are calling from the big blind with almost anything, which is quite a departure from the way things were, as I mentioned, 10 years ago. So now that that part of the game has changed, uh, I don't want to help my opponent play well. I mean, my goal 
is always to try to find ways to cause my opponent to make a mistake or at least give him an opportunity to make a mistake. Min raising pre-flop and allowing my opponent to call with a wide range is not doing that. Uh, raising bigger and having him still call with that same wide range that whatever website he's learning to play poker on uh, is telling him to call with despite the fact that I'm no longer giving him the attractive odds that make calling in those circumstances correct is a way for me to invite him to make a mistake in the hand. And that's a mistake that can be compounded on later streets when he finds himself in what is now an inflated pot against an aggressive player, me, <laughs> who probably doesn't always have uh, a post-flop skill edge against him but if you give me the button i can beat almost everybody we all can and that's why your ranges from late position should be much wider than your ranges from early position so where does that leave us in general well as with most uh poker questions it depends i would say that all things being equal and if i'm just going to play uh, try to play a perfect strategy. I should probably be opening my button with approximately 50% of my hands and I should be raising closer to 3x than to 2x in order to give my opponent a difficult decision when he has his marginal hands in the big blind uh, and hope that he will make a mistake. But the beauty of live poker is that this is just the place to start from. From the minute I sit down at the table, I begin making observations about my opponents. And those observations will help me deviate from that baseline strategy. If my opponent is tighter from the big blind, then, of course, I want to open more than 50% of my starting hands when it's folded to me on the button against him. Uh, if I notice that he seems to pay very little attention to bet sizing, then there's no reason for me to open so big to 3x or close to 3x. I can just go back to the old min race. If he's going to fold for that amount, then put it this way. When you are bluffing, as in stealing the blinds, you're, it's a type of bluff, right? When you're bluffing, you want to try to get a good price because you're trying to buy something. And when it, whether I'm trying to buy a pot or a car or a new mattress, I always try to get a good price when I'm selling something I try to get a higher price so when you have a value hand that you're trying to get uh, value for for that hand then you want to uh, generally go for a bigger bet now as with all things poker uh, it depends it depends it depends uh, I'm just kind of trying to, it's hard to discuss poker in a theoretical way uh, because of the fact that it's very I hate to use the, the overused phrase, but it's villain dependent. But guys, that phrase has become cliched for a reason. It's because very often it is the best way to describe how to approach a given poker problem. So Tony, I uh, want to thank you again for sending in your question. It was not a dumb question. And I hope that uh, we can get some conversation going on Twitter. You guys can tweet me at Clayton Comic. Also tweet at Tournament Poker Edge. Um, and let us know what you think of my response to this question and what parts of it you agree or disagree with. And how do you handle the ebb and flow of the game? I've actually seen opening raises getting larger because... People are learning that they can defend so widely against those min raises or those 2.1 or 2.2x uh, raises that they're learning and they're adjusting by opening wider. So uh, time will tell whether uh, calling ranges will also become tighter as pot odds become less attractive due to the larger opening bets. But that's, you know, it, some players will catch on faster than others, and so you need to know what kind of opponent you have. Is he playing 
a robotic style? Does he pay attention to bet sizing? Or is a raise a raise and is a bet a bet as far as he's concerned? Against players like that, it's pretty easy to induce big mistakes. Okay, well, it's been quite a while since we discussed a hand from the World Series of Poker main event last year. The last time we did so, we were late on day seven with 14 players left, and uh, it's been a number of weeks. So I want to get back to that. Um, My goal is to review all the hands that I wanted to review um, about that tournament, maybe get you guys in the mood to maybe play in the main event this summer uh, between this main event hand discussion that we've been doing on an ongoing basis and the uh, episode we did last week where we talked about all the different tournaments that they're going to have at the Rio this summer. I'm hoping that uh, listening to this podcast will make you long for uh, summer in Nevada. So with 13 players left, uh, just two tables, and of course everyone feeling the pressure of wanting to make that Uh, final table of the World Series of Poker main event, we have a pretty interesting spot that came up. Uh, It kind of actually ties in well to the strategy discussion that we've been having because of Tony's question. Um, We have a player that I feel actually a little bit bad that I've been picking on him a little bit. It just happens that I disagree with a lot of his plays. I'm not saying he's a terrible player or he's a bad person or even that I'm better than he is. But we're back to my old buddy, Ryan Fan. Uh, he's at a six-handed table, so there are two tables left. One is seven-handed, and the one we are going to be talking about in this hand is six-handed. Uh, there are 13 players left. The blinds are 200,000, 400,000 with a 50,000 ante. And by the way, guys, all of the No Limit Hold'em tournaments at the World Series of Poker this year, including the main event, all of them are going to use a big blind ante, which is going to uh, be a lot easier for the dealers and a lot better for the players because the big blind ante just speeds the game up so much. It makes a big difference. It might not feel like, you know, how can it make that big a difference? But I can't tell you how many times I've been to the table and the dealer's trying to talk to some kid on, uh, you know, he's, he's on his headphones and he's not paying attention. And she's like, you know, 50,000, come on, I need your ante. Sir, I need your ante. And she won't deal the cards until he finally looks up from his stupid iPad. <laughs> so we, we're not going to have that problem anymore because only the player in the big blind will ante all summer. So I'm really looking forward to that. But this is from last year. And it's 200K, 400K with 50K ante. Uh, so there's 900,000 in the pot, if you do the math. Um, the uh, first player folds. And now Ryan Fan, second to act. He's in second position, or as you guys may call it, under the gun plus one. Or at a six-handed table, you can even call it the hijack. He's two off the button, and he raises two 900,000, so a little bit more than a min raise. Uh, He's got pocket aces, ace of hearts, ace of clubs, and 15 million behind. Uh, It folds all the way around to the big blind, who is Artem Medalidi. And he's in the big blind holding king of clubs, jack of hearts. So, um, I I wanted to tell you guys what the players have in this hand. I know many times I just discussed the hand from one player's perspective and leave the other player's hand a secret. But in this particular hand, I wanted to do it this way for a reason. Um, So first off, the standard raise at the table has become 900,000. Now we talked earlier about how raising a small amount offers your opponents attractive pot odds to call with a wide range from the blinds or even uh, you know from the small blind to big blind it's just it's a raise size that is kind of easily managed by the players in the blinds especially the big blind who in this case is getting almost four to one on a call now obviously that's not a problem for Ryan because he has the nuts and he wants action 
Um, but the problem is more that because this raise size has become so standard at this table for the last hour and a half, however long they've been playing on this level, uh, it would be odd for him to raise to any other amount and would probably set off warning signals in some of his opponents' uh, brains that he doesn't want to send off. I mean, just business as usual. I have pocket aces. I'm going to make the same raise that everyone at this table has been making with all of their hands. Uh, it kind of takes one of the tools out of the of the bag, if you will, for the no limit hold'em player. So if you are playing limit hold'em, you're restricted to betting a fixed amount uh, pre-flop on the flop, and then it doubles on the turn in the river. Uh, this is no limit. And theoretically, we're allowed to bet whatever we want. But imagine that Ryan Pham is saying, oh, everybody's been making 900, 900, 900. Now all of a sudden he opens to 12, you know, 1.2 million. It would just be, oh, well, he must really have something. Um, so that's an argument for maybe not always following the standard raise uh, size at a table. But that's that's really uh, beyond the scope of, of the discussion I wanted to have today. But... Let's look at the uh, interesting dynamic that comes up here. So it's it costs there's 1.8 million in the pot, and our our friend Artem Metaliti holding King Jack in the big blind is it only costs him 500 more to call because he's already in for the 400k uh, big blind. So he's getting you know like about three and a half to one on a call. Here, so uh, obviously King Jack, given those pot odds, and even if you put Ryan Pham on a relatively tight opening range, I think there's nothing uh, to do here but just call and see the flop with my King Jack. Um, in Ryan's shoes, he does have a tight range, even though it's a six-handed table. We are basically on the final table bubble. There are a few players who have very short stacks, and it looks like if I just hang in there for a while, I'll probably make the final table. And this final table, the jump from 10th place to 9th place is one of the biggest percentage jumps in the in the main event. Uh, everyone at the final table will be making a guaranteed $1 million. Uh, so players are tight put it that way and there's no reason to raise to more than 900k when you're stealing so therefore you must keep it uh, simple and raise to 900k whether you're stealing or not so the flop comes and it's uh, kind of a disaster for Artem Metaliti it's jack of clubs nine of spades five of diamonds so Metaliti has top pair with a king kicker and he checks, which I think is correct. Uh, there's no reason to lead on this flop, especially with the relatively small number of potential draws available. Um, yeah, I just don't really see much else to do. Check to the razor here. And uh, Ryan Pham. The, now, the SPR, let's talk about the SPR because uh, at this point, there's 2.3 million in the pot and players start this hand with uh well ryan starts with about 15 million and metaliti starts with about 16 million so players basically have about 40 big blinds to start the hand m of 18 so they're not in uh any kind of desperate states uh at, at all so it's okay to see a flop it's okay to check you know, all that's fine um, with stacks this size, the SPR on this flop is 6.5. Now, that's a pretty big SPR. You don't really want to get all in with one pair, which is all Ryan has. Um, he's got to love his hand, but it's kind of an awkward stack size to have. Uh, when I have one pair, I strongly prefer to have an SPR of 3 or less, or maybe a really big SPR, like 8 or 9 or 10, 6.5 is in the slightly awkward zone. As anyone who's ever played any game with 40 big blinds knows, 
it's awkward. <laughs> it's just an awkward stack size to have. All right. So Ryan bets one million into two point three million, which to me feels a little bit small. Um, I like his decision to bet, but I think that uh, he needs to try to get some value for his aces. Although he doesn't have the nuts on the flop, obviously. Uh, you know, if if you outflopped me on Jack nine five then I have to be willing to lose some chips. I feel like this 1 million into 2.3, it's less than half the pot. And it's very important to consider what your bet sizing does for your opponent. Uh, Metaliti, if he held a hand like Queen-10, King-Queen, even 8-7, or some kind of double gut shot, like there are a lot of hands that he could have. It's not a draw-heavy flop but it's not the driest board I've ever seen either with all that in mind Ryan should be betting bigger here in my opinion Uh, his bet of 1 million into 2.3 offers 3.3 to 1 express pot odds to Metaliti and Metaliti with any piece of this flop should call that bet and with top pair king kicker it's a no brainer call so he does Make the call, and now the turn is the jack of spades. So not only does it pair the board, but it puts two spades on the board. Obviously, it's a great card for Metaliti, who checks again, which I like. I don't see any reason for him to alert Fan to the possibility that he could have a jack. Obviously, he called the flop, so... You know, there are some jacks in his range, maybe a lot of them, probably jack 8, jack 9, jack 10, all the way up uh, because of the pre-flop pot odds he was given in the big blind. Uh, So, yeah, he checks, and Fan chooses to check behind. Now, this play looks really good on TV because he's now behind. And when he's behind, he checks. Uh, I actually agree with his decision to check back on this turn card. Um, He doesn't want to put out another bet right now because he only has one pair. He can't really get called three times unless he's beat. What do I mean by that? All right, so maybe some of Metalidi's range includes... Uh, a 9, like Ace-9 or 9-7 or 10-9, something like that. Uh, you can target that hand. That's the kind of hand, textbook, check, call the flop, check, check the turn, check, call the river. But if Ryan bets the turn and Metaliti has a 9, he's probably going to fold it either on the turn or the river. So generally speaking... When you're targeting uh, that type of hand, you want to bet twice and not three times. The reason why is because nowadays, most players are not going to call you all the way down with 13 players left in the main event with just second pair. Or, you know, who knows, by the river, it could even be third pair. So it's a textbook, two streets of value type of hand. So I like the check. On the turn, although I think that Ryan should have built a bigger pot on the flop. Now the river is the four of clubs, which does not complete a flush for a final board of jack, nine, five, jack, four. So basically nothing got there. And now Metaliti out of position, first to act, here on the river, puts out a bet of 2 million into the pot of 4.3 million. Now, I'm not a fan of this bet sizing. Uh, I think that this is a great time for Metaliti to be polarized. So if he had 8-7 for a double gutter or a queen-10 for an open-ender on the flop, he should bet those hands here on the river. Uh, you want to balance that by 
betting your big hands, like three jacks or a set of nines or a set of fives. Uh, and therefore, when you're polarized, your bet sizing should be large. Uh, put it another way, would Metalidi bet if he had something like ace nine or king nine for second pair on this board? I don't think he would. I think most players would check and hope to induce a bluff from Ryan Fan when he has a uh, you know, hand like king queen that he thinks is not strong enough to win at showdown. So uh, I don't think that Metalides' betting range here includes very many marginal hands. I don't think it should include hands like Ace-9, 10-9. It should only include bluffs and trips or better. The reason for that is if he has something like 10-9, what is he value targeting if he bets 2 million into 4.3 million with 10-9? Can he really get called by worse? I think the answer is no. Um, Ryan Fan has shown uh, that he... He's not going to just pay off with something like ace-king. So I just don't see any value in betting those hands. So that means Metaliti should only bet this river when he can beat one pair. So uh, obviously nobody has one pair because the board is paired, but you guys know what I mean by that. All right, so because he's polarized... And he's going to want to have value and bluffs only. Uh, that's a great time to be polarized. Uh, that's a great time when you're polarized. A great time to overbet. I think into 4.3 million, he should put out a bet of 6.8 million, 7 million, something like that. Overbet the pot. I don't think you don't want to go too too crazy. You want to go a little crazy in these situations. Um, I think a bet of six and a half million will get called often enough to show a bigger profit than betting $2 million. Uh, Ryan's not calling either bet with ace-king. So when he doesn't have ace-king, what does he have? Uh, well, he's going to call with some of that range. The one pair hands, maybe pocket tens, maybe pocket queens, kings, aces, obviously. Uh, he can get action from those hands, even with an overbet, because in fans' shoes, it's been check call, check check, and now this big bet on the river, which looks like it could be one of those bluffs, queen ten, eight seven, and sometimes will be one of those bluffs. So because he's polarized when he makes this bet, I believe it should be a very large bet, and that Ryan will be correct to call with aces. Instead, he only bets two million, which of course Fan calls with pocket aces and sees the bad news. And the commentators, Maria Ho, Norman Chad, Lon McCarran, say, wow, that, that pot could have been a lot bigger. And they kind of gave Ryan Fan a lot of credit for losing less than he otherwise might have. But one reason he lost less than he might have otherwise is because he bet too small when he was way, way, way ahead. <laughs> so I don't think we should congratulate him for that. And then another reason why he lost much less than he should have was because of the sizing that Metaliti chose on the river. So, you know, when you're in these spots and the blood is pumping and you're sniffing that $8.8 million first place prize, it's very hard to keep your head screwed on tight. But one question I like to ask myself is how polarized am I? And in this situation, I don't think Metaliti is ever betting. I, I should never say ever, right? <laughs> I should always never not say not never. I should say he will seldom be value betting a marginal made hand. He's either going to be betting a very big hand or a bluff in these spots. And therefore, it makes sense for him to make a large bet with a polarized range. Uh, I want to get your guys' thoughts on that hand as well. 
uh, at Clayton Comic on Twitter. Love to hear from you. Interestingly, uh, my friend Maria Ho, who I love and respect very much, um, I just disagree with her in this case. She commented on this hand. She said that uh, on ESPN, she said that uh, Metaliti would lead with a nine for value. And I just don't know what he's trying to get value from if he bets two million on the river with a hand like ace nine or ten nine or whatever. So yeah, uh, Maria and I differ on that. And I think that the river bet is polarized. So what do you guys think? Okay, well, let's do one more from uh, just a few minutes later. The We'll go to the other table, though. Uh, here's a really interesting spot on the other table. Now, at this point, there were actually 12 players remaining as our chip leader. Michael Dyer had just busted Harry Vercovici in 13th place. So uh, with 12 players left, it seemed that Michael Dyer was running away with it, a la Joe McKeon a few years back. Uh, so everything seems to be going Dyer's way. He has the overwhelming chip lead with about 86 million, the second highest stack, only around 55 million. And now with 12 players left, six, six at each remaining table, uh, the following hand occurs. Two folds to Joseph Cata in the cutoff position at the six-handed table. Two folds, so he's in third position, which is just one off the button. And he's got 15.2 million behind. He's holding the five of hearts, five of diamonds, and raises to 900. Uh, he is the shortest stack remaining at this table and third shortest in the tournament. I have no problems with uh, this open. I think it's totally fine. Uh, as I said before, once the standard raise becomes so standard, you really can't start adjusting your raise sizing without drawing attention to yourself. And I think holding fives, you don't really want that kind of attention. Unless making it 1,200 here will look like aces, and then Kata should be pretty happy to win the pot uh, without a fight. Uh, however, he does raise to 900, not calling attention to himself. Uh, on his immediate left, our chip leader, Michael Dyer, on the button, calls with the eight of spades and seven of spades, which is probably also fine. Although I'd like, holding a hand like that, I'd like to have my only certain opponent be a little deeper. Um, you know, like in this case, Kata uh, has about... 38 big blinds and uh, I don't know it's it's not bad okay but it, it with the hand like eight seven you really kind of rely on the uh, post flop implied odds and this hand is this stack is just a little too small I'd like to see Cato with an M of about 20 uh, in this case he would have like 50 big blinds so I, I'm quibbling a little bit it's not a terrible play obviously um, then Alex Linsky in the small blind with uh, 50, looks like 57 million behind, calls holding the 8-6 of clubs, 8 of clubs, 6 of clubs. So uh, little does he know how dominated he is <laughs> by Dyer's 8-7 suited. Uh, and then in the big blind, uh, a, a guy... Zhu, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Zhu is uh, a really tight player. I played with him quite a bit myself on day six. Um, he folds king for offsuit, getting seven to one on a call. Um, you know, I don't know if, if Zhu would always fold this hand or if it's just, you know, I'm going to lock it down because there are 12 players left in the main event. And he's really trying to make that final table. But it gives you a sense of uh, the kind of pre-flop mistakes that players make. Um, in my opinion, this is a pretty clear mistake. Um, I'm sure someone out there would argue, even though King 4-Off is not a 7-1 to underdog uh, in this pot, 
uh, there's no way you can know that, and you're just too often dominated, yada, yada, yada. To me, it's like you give me seven to one, I'll take almost any two cards and get in there, uh, especially closing the action as uh, Zhu would have done. Anyway, he does fold, and three players see the flop of ten of clubs, four of diamonds, tray of clubs. So uh, with 3.4 million in the pot, the action's on the small blind. Alex Linsky holding a flush draw. He's got the 8-6 of clubs on 10-4 tray with two clubs. And Linsky checks. Kata continuation bets into two opponents. Only 1.3 million into the 3.4 million pot. Uh, it's a pretty small bet and one that I don't think Joe would have made if he held an overpair or even a 10. And I think that uh, it's just too small of a bet. You don't protect your hand against the possible draws um, when you make a bet of this size. And it's also hard to convince me that you have something strong if you made a bet that clearly does not uh, protect your hand. By which I mean, if I'm holding a 6-5 or any two clubs, I should be calling, and profitably so, uh, against you when you only bet 1.3 million into 3.4 million on this board. Uh, Michael Dyer perhaps sniffing that out or just perhaps deciding to try to win every single pot until the final table clicks it to 2.88 million, basically a min raise here, which puts our flush draw holding friend Alex Linsky in a tough spot. Now remember, Dyer only has eight, seven of spades. The flop contains no spades, so Dyer does this with complete air. He has no pair and no draw. He has a backdoor bottom end straight draw, I guess. I mean, maybe five, six can come, and then he'll have the top end. Uh, it's just, he has nothing. But I think that he may have sensed weakness on the part of Kata, and he knows that Linsky would probably need a very strong hand to continue even against this min-raise. Notice that Dyer is giving himself a very good price to win this pot. He's putting in $2.8 million to win what is now a $4.7 million chip pot. Um, everybody folds. So I can't blame Linsky for not going crazy. He's got a decent stack. He doesn't really need to get involved in a huge confrontation against the chip leader from out of position, even though he does have a flush draw. Uh, he knows that Dyer would probably do this with better flush draws, and then that could be his sob story of how he busted 12th in the main event the time that he went up against a bigger flush draw and got there on the turn. And so it, probably having those kind of thoughts in his head, he folds the eight high flush draw, and then Kata really can't continue or at least chooses not to continue uh, with his pair of fives. Now, guys, I am definitely not saying that I would have been able to continue with just a pair of fives. But if you look at the math here, uh, Kata is being offered odds of, well, let's see, there's now about 7.6 million in this pot. And it only would cost about 1.5 million to call. So that's right around 5 to 1. Um, yeah, I really can't blame Kata for not calling. And he really doesn't have a stack to play back if he suspects that uh, Dyer could be taking liberties here as he has been for the last several hours as the final table bubble has been looming. Uh, it then maybe if he had a little bit more of a stack, he could make a play, but it would just cost him too much. You know, suppose Dyer raises to 2.88 million and then Kata decides to make it, I don't know, even if he clicks it again to say 5 million, uh, Dyer would fold his air, but when he doesn't fold, uh, Kata's going to be leaving himself with only about 10 million behind in a pot that's now going to be well over 10 million large. So it's just, 
it's it's risky business doing that. I mean, obviously it's a play to consider. Um, he could try it once and then give up if there's any further action. Although think about it, may, maybe certain turn cards might be attractive for Kata to shove. For example, uh, a six or maybe even an ace, obviously a five, but any of those cards, a deuce, would give him a straight draw and it might be fun to take a semi-bluff opportunity there. But I don't know if you want to do that against the chip leader. Michael Dyer has not really shown um, a tendency to fold very much, and it just seems like that would be a negative play. Um, sometimes it's fun to just kind of creatively think about what you might do under certain circumstances, even though those are not the circumstances that are presenting themselves. Uh, kind of decides that discretion is the better part of valor and gets out of Dyer's way as Dyer continues to build his stack for that upcoming final table. So uh, a lot of lessons there um, in those two hands. Uh, the second hand in particular, I, I really enjoy watching because it just shows the power of being aggressive when you have a big stack late in a tournament that people care about. And there's not one tournament on earth that people care about more than the main event. So nobody wants to uh, go after you. Dyer gets people to fold the best hand in this tournament over and over and over. And much like our own Casey Jarzebeck, doesn't need a hand or a draw to do so. Here's a great example. He does this in this situation with just eight high and not even a backdoor flush draw to go with it. So that's going to do it for this episode, guys. I hope that you uh, enjoy this podcast as much as we all enjoy bringing it to you each and every week. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can get my secret super special guest to come on next week. Uh, but if not, I'm sure that he or she will join me in an upcoming episode. Thanks to everyone who has shared feedback either on Twitter at Clayton Comic or uh, by leaving us those really nice reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Uh, believe me, it really helps us a lot if you guys can just rate and review. Uh, if you give us that five-star rating, it helps us uh, rise to the top of the charts, as it were, in the podcast, poker podcasting world. So uh, for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher, and thank you guys so much for listening.